0: Linux Journal readers. Thanks for joining us again. I am Catherine Druckman, and I am talking today to Doc Searles, our editor-in-chief at Linux Journal, and Don Marty, who works for Mozilla and is a member of the advisory board for Incentives Research, a group out of Canada, and most importantly is a former editor of Linux Journal. I will let both of them tell you more about, about their common background and their individual backgrounds.
1: I, I want to add a little bit more that um, I I think um, Don is Don preceded me by several people of uh, as editor in chief of Linux Journal, and um, and was just fantastic in that job. I thought he did a, a great job during one of our earlier golden ages, and um, uh, and actually spiked a number of things I wrote. He was that good,
0: <laughs> 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 um,
1: and uh, and also Don was did a wonderful thing for me when I was writing a book called The Intention Economy, of doing a lot of research in Harvard's virtual library on all things advertising, and then ran with it. Don is, I think, easily, to to me, the deepest thinker on the subject of not just advertising, but everything that pretends to be advertising, including, (laughs) including direct marketing and and what has happened to advertising online, and, and I just think his writing on it is, is pretty much without equal. It's so good. Well,
2: they invited me to give a talk about advertising and the behavioral economics of advertising that draws on some of that research at uh, a conference called Nudge Stock last year, uh, run by Ogilvy, the big advertising wow. agency. So I don't know if you've seen those mugs that say "I need new haters; the old ones that don't even <laughs> like me."
0: <laughs> I sometimes
2: feel like that with the uh, with the ad people these days.
1: <laughs> That's like I, I saw an image for um, a, a new Apple mug where the the mug itself without the handle costs five thousand dollars, and the handle oh. costs fifteen hundred dollars.
0: I saw that. <laughs> That's yeah. out of control.
1: <laughs> that, that plays off the, off the latest uh, news from them. Um, so, is, so d- d- do I take it, Don, that they they didn't like what you said, or just that uh, uh, I, I've had that effect. I mean, I, I've considered myself a scourge, along with you, in some ways, to to business as usual in the advertising.
0: It sounds well, like no, people think... are coming around. They are point of view. They are
1: actually, yeah. There's a there's a there's a shift. I mean, that's probably a good thing to talk about. I mean, because you're you're kind of on the front of that, especially with I mean Mozilla, we could separate this out as a separate topic, I suppose, but um uh the, the latest Firefox does block third party tracking. Um uh and that's a huge move. Um but there's a drift of the other browser makers in their own different ways are doing things. So And that's part of a larger trend, so maybe you could just sort of unpack that for us.
2: Yeah, Apple Safari got out ahead of the rest of the pack in a lot of interesting ways. And people certainly joke about the $999 monitor stand, but it's pretty clear that the people who buy that kind of high-end equipment are also the people who are least trackable by conventional ad tech. So if you want to reach the kind of people who can either afford a tricked-out Macintosh or have a job where their employer will buy them one, then you really have to think about how do we place advertising in such a way that it doesn't depend on the kinds of creepy tracking that the Safari developers have put so much effort into avoiding?
1: Yeah, and Catherine, maybe I'm wrong about this, but didn't we finally put the nail in the lid of uh, of the coffin of uh google analytics for our own yeah. website when we found Yeah, we that, don't
0: use it at all that
1: are that in 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 respect to what don was just saying our, our readers block tracking for the most part Yeah, they, they block wanna,
0: tracking it was it was so far from being accurate that it was not useful anymore um yeah every, i mean who doesn't block block track i mean every i, I want to say i'm I'm kind of throwing this out there, but I want to say it was only grabbing maybe 30% of our traffic. I want to say a good 60% of our tra- traffic was blocking it. Um, That's
2: interesting. So I've, I've seen some numbers from web developer sites and from blogs that focus on web development, and those are often showing a 30 to 40% block rate but it's really interesting that Linux Journal readers are coming in at sixty.
0: I, I think that's yeah. that's pretty close to, to accurate. So, you know, got it. We could talk. We could do it's, it. It's a, a sales, It's a,
1: it's a selling point. It's a great selling point.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're looking at server stats. We're at CDN stats. And we're comparing them to to uh, to Google things like Google Analytics. And yeah, and it was showing. And we had tried um, Matomo as well, you formerly Piwik. Um, And yeah, it was showing. Maybe, maybe we were maybe we were blocking. Maybe it was. Yeah, I would guess it was about sixty. It's pretty crazy.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so there are right now marketing organizations that are going out and trying to reach the kind of people who buy virtual private servers or software-as-a-service products or developer tools. And if you do conventional data-driven marketing when you're going after that kind of audience, then you're really going to get a lot of of fraud bots and your, your marketing operation is going to be making decisions based on what, Bots like to read, not so much what those <laughs> um, what those those high tech or highly protected users are interested
1: in. And have you seen a, 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 a sign of that knowledge being generalized beyond you know people like us talking about it, where it it's becoming obvious to some people on the marketing side that the most valuable people are gonna be the ones that are most protected?
2: I'm cautiously optimistic because of the change over from targeting millennials to targeting Generation Z. I don't know if you've seen the, the marketing thought leaders are changing up all their slides and they no longer huh. say the millennials are different. They're saying Generation Z is all different, but it's really kind of the same millennials material so huh. there's there's a nice niche for a marketing thought leader to scrap the generation driven slides and kind of become the marketing thought leader of the tracking protected segment
1: did do, do, do you see um we were you know do you see the Loomescape, um you know and the 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 Martech seven thousand it is now. The, there are thousands of companies that are more or less dependent on on tracking in one form or another. Um, do you see that starting to break up, or is, I mean, it is 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 that middle that four dimensional shell game between the advertiser on the one hand and the publisher or the medium on the other hand um, starting to f- actually fall apart at this point, or is it just is it all scrambling while while it dawns on them that there may not be a business here in the long run?
2: Well, there's definitely a lot of consolidation happening. Amazon is, of course, buying companies to ramp up their presence in the ad tech space. Um, A lot of the smaller vendors are less able to keep up with changes in privacy technology and uh, privacy regulation. So... We're seeing a bunch of of consolidation. Some of which is super quiet, and and some of which makes the the news.
1: Yeah. So uh, let, let me ask about um, Moza, you know Mozilla's um, decision to to block third party uh, cookies or trackers or whatever it is exactly uh, that that Apple started with. Have you? Uh, has has there been an, an increase in downloads? is there a sense that this is you know a break in the ice at this point i mean we We both worked with Mozilla a few years ago you stayed there i i i didn't but the um but we you know you've got some some you know something on the on the time scale to to look at
2: yeah uh, and and a lot of people have been asking the question of why hasn't Mozilla done more with privacy protection sooner? And in order to answer that, you really need to dig into Bugzilla, which is the in-house bug tracker, and see just how many um, uh, third-party resource issues pop up when you change the behavior of the browser. People have been developing websites that do interesting things with third-party resources on the page for a very long time, and it's it's hard to tell exactly how any particular privacy measure will break uh, a website that somebody might depend on
1: so let's i'm i'm curious too also about um, europe versus the us versus the rest of the world um, i've been in a number of conversations lately um, with friends in europe uh, who are insistent that th- the internet itself is kind of breaking up especially on the website um, because because the G- primarily because of the gdpr which is now a year old um, and that it's stifling innovation on uh, on the European side. One source told me yesterday that uh, she sees every day she hears from some company that says, uh, or some developer, just some hacker saying that there's stuff I can't I'm not gonna do now because I'm to um, I have to worry about GDPR compliance, even if they're not doing anything that's the least bit privacy violating, it's suddenly that's. You know, there's a sense of protection that's sort of amplified there. Um, Another complaint is that people in in Europe can't shop in the U.S. the way they used to because the U.S. for the most part, uh, a lot of the retailers just sort of blowing off the GDPR. Yeah, Um, and you can't read the LA Times. So there um, there are still some
2: U.S. news sites that haven't gone through the process of figuring out GDPR compliance across... All the third parties on their page so to be on the safe side they have to block the europeans
0: yeah, there are a lot of sites doing that yeah
2: yeah, yeah. so yeah. what i'm what i'm really looking for is what's an example of an innovative or useful product that is available in the usa but it's not available in Europe because of GDPR. There's, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of hypothetical talk about privacy regulations stifling innovation, but where's the thing that you can buy here, but you can't buy in Europe uh, because
1: of the regulatory environment? Hmm. Do you have any guesses about what one of those might be? An, a, 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 an internet of thing or um I'm, I'm wondering about that i i know like a ne- uh a thermostat or a you know some other thing that's busy narking on you <laughs> um i mean I, I i guess i mean something that might be worth talking about there is that um there are the kinds of things that we get where it's quite obvious that they're spying on you and and they're spying on you for a, a, a particular company. Like you get a, a an Amazon Alexa or a Google, whatever it is, and uh, that hockey puck-looking thing, um, and it's listening to you. And it's a little—it's a smart speaker, right? The smart speakers of the world. There, the two main ones are from those two companies. But you're dealing just with those companies. You know what they're—you know what they're about. Whereas, um, you may not know that um, you're, television is is busy spying on you because you know they're not you know they don't make that clear
2: yeah and somebody said that um smart in the case of smart speakers smart homes and so on um, is really an acronym uh, for surveillance marketed as revolutionary technology oh that's
1: good
0: yeah accurate and
2: in in europe people are having to be notified and give consent for um, for data collection here in the USA there's there's some um, things that that people can get in trouble for doing but we don't really have that that get consent upfront uh, concept that the Europeans have
1: yeah and then there We have people in both places and now also in India as well on one of the projects I'm involved with that are working on making consent go the other way. And you've been involved with some of that as well, where, you know, one stage of it is, let's just hack the existing system. So I've said already once to one party, um, I do not consent to being tracked and then that that gets carried forward to all the rest of them. Um, You want to talk a little bit about what the stages of the evolution of that kind of thing might might be or where they might go?
2: Sure, sure. The, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, which is the trade association for ad tech, came up with a really interesting system for compliance with GDPR. Uh, they call it the IAB Transparency and Consent Framework. Now, what Transparency and Consent Framework does is it attempts to capture a consent bit for all the the data usage purposes listed in the GDPR and for all the vendors that might be making use of them. So you end up with this very long EU consent cookie uh, that's set in a standard format that all the the third parties are supposed to respect. Now, some people have criticized IAB, uh, TCF for not really capturing informed consent, but I don't think that's a problem with uh, TCF itself. I think that it's a problem with some of the user interface that ends up put on top of it. So, if you can generate uh, that TCF cookie correctly based on what you really know about that, that user's privacy norms and preferences, then that standard actually helps um, enforce what people really want to have happen on usage of their personal information without making everybody Go through a long form for every site that they uh, that they want
1: to use. So, and I, I I know you've you've been involved with something that I was involved in an ancestor of, which is the global consent manager. That's that does roughly what you were just talking about, right? Yes, yes. That'll that'll give you a lot better consent experience
2: because the first time you visit a site, it will. Temporarily give you a uh, consent cookie that says no consent for anything, and then later on, um, if you show that you trust that site by visiting re- it repeatedly, then it will allow that site to capture consent
1: from you. That do you see? Um, I mean, to, to me, speaking for myself, I, it's kind of like. You know, we we made a mistake not long after um, Lou Montulli invented the cookie for Netscape back in the mid-90s. Um, uh, I mean, I did, Phil Windley has a really good way of putting this. He has a slide that the title of which is The History of E-Commerce, 1995, Invention of the Cookie, The End. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's sort of like we've been stuck inside this this sort of, cul-de-sac off the side of client server um something we invented in in the mid-90s because we're all you know users were all on dial-up we were all clients um the inherently end-to-end peer-to-peer nature of the internet got got kind of um defeated by by the you know slave master uh, arrangement between a, a the the client and the server on a a browser on a site do you see any hope for end, it, it, modifying or ending that, or some, or having having that system where? I mean, the original cookie was simply to recall state. You know, I come back, I, I belonged here, I logged in once, I have a shopping cart. We can find it over here. That was remembering state, but to to this other thing where you get injected with all these third-party cookies that get arranged like a DNA string that gets presented to every site you go to subsequently, and do you see it? Do you see any hope for either ending that or modifying it with the kind of things that are going on now, or blocking the third parties, utterly enforcing the what they call the first parties? What I might call the second party, which is the site, to um, come up with a whole new way of doing things, like we, we come up with some better tech for do it for on the server side as well as the the client side. Well, or are we stuck. You know, that's. I guess the question is, are we stuck?
2: Yeah. I, I I don't think we're stuck. I think that a lot of the talking points that we're getting from um, from from ad tech and martech today are very similar to what the email spammers were coming up with in the early days of spam filters. Uh, the the early spam filters, of course, were done. By technical early adopters, the kind of people who read Linux Journal and know how to write procmail RC files, and when those people started rolling out their original um, simple spam filters to the um, the less uh, internet skilled users, the spammers started started saying, hey, wait a minute, um, users like getting messages about opportunities for great savings on Herbal Viagra or whatever the, the latest spam campaign was. Um, the message from the email spam scene was really um, privacy nerds are... Less in tune with the preferences of uh, regular users than we the spammers are. So you should pay more attention to what spammers want, and less attention to what uh, spam filter uh, developers think is the right thing to do. And and we really we really saw that not not come across very well as as email spam moved from a niche uh um a niche issue for people who had had their email address out there for a long time to being a mainstream day-to-day annoyance the 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 general population of users turned out to be more like um the privacy nerds than like the the way that the the spammers predicted they would be.
1: That's interesting. When you were, I hadn't, I'd forgotten it. I remember now your your comparison of the uh, of today's ad tech excuses being a lot, an awful lot like the the, uh, the 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 spammers' excuses twenty years ago, and it called to mind one of my favorite Onion headlines, which was. From the '90s, it was um, anti-spam legislation opposed by powerful penis enlargement lobby. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of the way I see those guys at this point. And an interesting thing about the IAB, the, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, is is the the notion that um, that the best advertising is the most interactive, and and that the best advertising. Uh, and I know you've written about this, is is the most efficient. I mean, somehow, the most quoted thing that I've written in the, in the last few years, one-liners, is that Madison Avenue fell asleep, direct response marketing ate its brain, and it woke up as an alien replica of itself. Um, and And that's because what was a great virtue of brand advertising, which is that it was aimed at populations, and it carried a strong economic and um as well as a creative signal uh that that said this is a serious company and it's important and um and it's one of the reasons that for example i can't get out of my mind that 15 minutes will save me 15 percent with geico because i watch a lot of sports and geico advertises on a lot of sports i'll never use geico i've been with liberty mutual since forever and you know i'm not going to change but that helps their company right and and that's been sort of forgotten in, 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 at a time when digital technology has allowed advertising to be a lot more um, uh, programmatic. But programmatic can also cover you know, brand advertising and pretty much everything will get placed programmatically at this point anyway. So there's this sort of blurring between everything where um, people writing about advertising especially will take as a given that the, bo- the best advertising is the most personal when in fact the best advertising might be the least personal because that's what gives you a brand. Um, and uh, Catherine and I were talking about this before before you came on, uh, trying to think of there is any brand known to the world that's been made by personalized behavioral advertising. And I don't think there is, but maybe there has been, and I don't know about it.
0: Actually, but, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what we were talking about um, earlier, and I think the difference is, you know, with all of these technologies, when they er, early on... You can, let's say, exploit them. I'm not going to say for good or evil, but uh, Facebook is a good example. We were talking about Facebook ads, and what was it? Allbirds, I think. The, it was a shoe company. Yeah,
1: Allbirds is one that yeah, I yeah that they did. I really well, that they, were, they started with, uh, out doing tech, yeah. with
0: Facebook advertising. Well, I, I've had personal experiences. You know, with again in the very beginning of Facebook advertising, a lot of nonprofits were using it. Um, we did a wine event, you know, locally, and we sold out based on like facebook advertising and you're talking about but again you're talking about localized things and, and small entities and whatnot and i you know it, it used to be actually quite useful and a lot of bang for the buck advertising wise 10 years later yeah i i question that anybody gets value out of it anymore and people have become quite cynical about it and and facebook as we know has <laughs> become a little bit evil and um yeah so i don't know it's
1: do you, do you want to separate those out a bit, Don? Because I, th- I think you've done a pretty good job with that.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the The big question is, why are all the TV commercials for cars basically the same? It's the car <laughs> driving down. The a car street skidding road, in the desert. The classic <laughs> music, right? Or the de- or the desert road or whatever, right? Car commercials don't carry any information about the car because you could shoot any car commercial with any car, right? So why do they make them? The The only bit of information that a car commercial sends is if it was a waste of your time to test drive our car, it would have been a waste of our money to make this movie about it and buy the TV time.
1: That's the pure mm. economic role of that form of advertising Uh, so so so. it must have been worth their time right that's it
2: well they they are making a hard they're they're sending a hard to fake message about the extent they believe that this product will actually sell once you check it out And of course, advertising isn't the entire story behind building brand reputation, but it sets part of the it, it sets up part of the information that people can use to evaluate a product or um, or figure out the reputation of a brand. Brands are really interesting. Brands are a cognitive hack that uses our brains hardwired circuitry for evaluating each other's reputation.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: It, 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 you know, an interesting thing about that is that, um, so I noticed the last few days, because I, I watched the NBA finals. Uh, I'm a former... Um, season ticket holder for the golden state warriors uh but i, I really kind of interested in the raptors because <laughs> because canada right and anyway um the an interesting thing about that is there the probably the biggest advertiser it seems like it on there to me is kia which is advertising the uh a new car called a teller and and uh and you're right it could be you could have a different voice or if You can put different logos on those cars. They're all doing the same thing. You know, they're, they're, they're showing a car driving through the mud sideways and, you know, and, and stirring things up and making dust and, and the rest of it. Um, but I just got uh, a new consumer reports in the mail and, um, and the Telleride does really well. They top rated it. They said it's a really great vehicle. And, and, and I found myself thinking, Oh, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. So, you know, that's, well, it, you know, there was, there was a hack there on checking out the reputation. Well, the reputation was kind of confirmed by another party that was not in the advertising loop and probably, and, and went out of its way not to have anything to do with it. Um, But it did elevate my estimation of, of, of Kia, which would not have been where it was, had, was I not, were I not watching so many ads for them. Yeah, on, on the only television I watch <laughs> I should add. And
2: that would be a really interesting piece of research is comparing TV ad spend to consumer reports ratings and mm-hmm. the TV ad spend a reliable leading indicator of how well that car actually does in the independent tests. It's kind of like what well, Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy compared advertising to uh, someone betting on their own horse at the track. If you go uh, to uh, the racetrack and see that the horse's owner is betting heavily on that horse, they've probably got more information than you do.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, um, I, I want to go back a little bit without leaving that topic because it needs to be on the table uh, to what Catherine just said about Facebook advertising. Um, and the different breeds that we blur together, but may be entirely different. I've I've been told that um, the vast majority of money that Facebook makes on advertising is not on the kind that, um, that 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 is of the kind that Catherine was just talking about. You know, the somebody's having a barbecue, <laughs> you know, and and they advertise the barbecue, or they advertise, you know, to to the handful or the relative handful of people who. Are in that area and might be qualified if, if from what little they know. I mean, if, I want, I want barbecue eaters in Houston. Um, you know, likely to be available on Saturday. Uh, um, you know, who go out a lot. You know, you can find those, I suppose, on on Facebook. And uh, I, I know I've heard that kind of thing about, um, for example, fly fishing in Idaho. You know, if you're going to go fly fishing in Idaho. Um, on the something or other river, and you know, they can, there's enough people that are are letting the world know that they're doing that, that you can hit them with ads, and and they tend to be pretty successful. But again, I think there's no cognitive overhead in that, or very little, you know, you're not wondering why I'm seeing that ad. It, it, you know, I'm gonna be going fly fishing, I'm seeing a fly fishing ad. Um, and it works for the tackle shop or whatever it is. It, It's similar in some ways to Something I know you've set out as, as distinctive from other kinds of advertising, which is search advertising. It's n- there's no cognitive overhead that, to that either. You, if you search for the height of Mount Everest, then you get a, see ads for a Tibetan vacation. Um, that's fine. I mean, you see, you know why you're seeing that, and um, and it might be interesting to you. You may not ever want to do that. You know, go there. You're only looking for the height, but it still makes sense because it's contextually relevant. Um, but both of those are very different from the, you know, you're you're carrying a virus of of sorts that is reporting on your activities to surveillance to the surveillance auction block um, for ads that you're going to see in the in the Washington Post this afternoon because you just happen to show up there.
2: Yeah, and if you're a chief marketing officer who drives a BMW, then most of the targeted advertising that that gets targeted to you is going to be kind of the positively targeted advertising looking for someone who has a certain budget for a certain kind of activity or who probably has a certain lifestyle Um, what we don't see as the privileged uh, tech insiders or um professional and management uh, type people is the advertising that is targeted to avoid high information individuals so if you know that certain people are less likely to be able to recognize uh, deceptive financial products or deceptive health products, then uh, a medium like Facebook is an incredibly effective way to get an ad in front of the suckers without getting an ad in front of the people who will recognize it and uh, enforce either laws or policies or norms uh, on that deceptive offer.
1: So, um, I'm thinking that, you know, you, you've said a bunch about, um, not so much here, but I think you could go into it, um, how people actually have a pretty good sense of behavioral economics. So, they're, they are good behavioral economists to some degree. I think you have to be if you want to have any money left. Yeah, that's it. Well, okay, so un- unpack that a little bit um, for us, because obviously we're we're all walking through a minefield that all of us understand in somewhat different ways. But, but I think you're, one of your points is that people do become pretty adept at understanding, even if they're not of, of navigating the world, even if they don't fully understand what's going on behind the surface.
2: Yeah. And you can't make the optimal decision for most of the decisions that, you have to make in your um, in, in your your economic life. I don't have the time to buy the optimal pair of socks. So what is a set of tools that I can use to get an adequate pair of socks in the amount of time that I have to make that decision.
1: Yeah, uh, for me, that's going to Costco and buying too many socks with <laughs> 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 in, in one go because there they are. <laughs> they're, right. ad- they're adequate. They right. have-
0: who, needs, who needs advertising anymore? <laughs> when you go to Costco, you just buy whatever they have, and whatever brand it is, whatever whatever purpose it serves, whatever Costco has, that's the only advertising right. you need.
2: Right, you read the Consumer Reports ratings for um, for low-priced products, and the Costco Kirkland brand is probably going to be in the top five.
1: Yeah, I, I, an interesting thing they this new Consumer Reports talks about bottled waters. You know, and the the Kirkland brand is among the kind that are that doesn't have arsenic in it. For example, a lot of the ones you've heard of do have bad particles in it or arsenic or some other thing like that um, which is a, a little bit surprising but the, the, the one of the things that um, struck me about about Costco was um, uh, they, they their hearing aids were top rated I mean they not just in the top five they were the top one and and they looked suspiciously identical to another brand called Oticon and uh, I had just been every year I go to the same uh, hearing specialist in Santa Barbara to have my hearing tested, and 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 every year I don't I don't quite need hearing aids, right? So, um, and but but this last time uh, they, they were a bit more insistent on having me consider them. So I I wore some of the Oticon's for about a week and a half, and uh, but they're six thousand dollars, right? So but I noticed well the the Costco ones were this looked identical. They're clearly a white label version of the Otacons, right? And uh, I think the only difference is that maybe they don't come with the iPhone or Android app to go with it or something like that. Anyway, I, then I went to Costco, and I got a much better hearing test uh, than I got from the hearing doctor, and it cost me nothing. And they said, you really don't need hearing aids, and, and, and educated me some more on it, saying, well, you know, if you get them, you'll just get kind of used to them, and and you'll actually alter your hearing. Your brain will be altered by that. And do you want your brain reconfigured to have things hanging off your head or not? And, and it was, I I was really impressed by that, but I think, but it also comported with my understanding of, of Costco, which is they're also gaming me to some degree. I know, I know they're rotisserie chicken. They're, they're (laughs) selling at a loss, you know, and that, uh, you know, probably they're selling a lot of other things at a loss. I know they're, you know, they will show you something that you're not ever going to see again. And you know, here's—I know we I don't play the piano, but here is a Clavinova for $195 or something like that. Well, damn it, I guess I better get it. You know, I can't leave here without spending $200. Um, but I know them, right? Again, it, it, there's not much cognitive overhead involved in shopping at Costco if you already do that a lot. Um, well, I—I want to. You know, we're—we're. We're, not quite in an hour yet, but I, I, I didn't want to leave you without talking about Linux. Um, and there's a bunch going on right now with with Linux that I think is relevant. Um, we've, probably the, the thing that's gotten the most action, for me anyway, in the last uh, month or so, and we've talked about it on this podcast some, is, is a growing distance between the the old guard the the legacy is they were on your list you know you had the linux elitist list for a long time with a lot of familiars on it that and you know that 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 were among the the leaders in the community that knew what free software and open source were they knew what the difference was they saw the value in it they they used the stuff they didn't you know they didn't write um their code on um on a Windows or a Mac, they wrote it on their own machines on uh, linux machines and there was but but there wasn 't this distance where Linux is buried so deeply inside a container or or all kinds of higher level stuff and and where there was a sense of obligation to uh, to provide code back into the the code bases and not just to use it and I wonder if you have any thoughts about that from your really long perspective in 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 the community
2: yeah well i i i hate to use this expression but uh, i'm going to use it anyway and i'm i'm going to say these kids today don't know how good they have it Mm -hmm. um a lot of the expectations around the availability of Operating systems and system software and development tools uh, that we have today would have been really surprising back when Linux was Linux was actually a, a a recognizable name and people would give up an evening or a weekend to go to a thing just about Linux. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um it was it was almost like for a lot of of corporate development, you you needed to have uh, some kind of a certification or a Microsoft developer network subscription or other kind of of high overhead, um, Uh, gatekeeping products and services to to do certain kinds of development. Now today, they will give you the system software and the tools and everything for free, and they'll invite you to a meetup and give you free food. So, so, in one sense, the the Linux scene has already succeeded. the The availability of zero cost working infrastructure software is something that that people take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, what What started as the free software movement and part of which kind of rebranded itself as the open source movement so that people could spend more time on it at work, um, that was a low remuneration but also low transaction cost method for collaboration. Today, people complain about sending patches on mailing lists as being a clunky system of development, but back in the day, it was really transformative. You had people able to do large scale software development projects without the kind of transaction costs that people were we're dealing with in um, in especially proprietary Unix systems. It was a it was a transformative thing back then, and you also didn't have the ability to do software as a service or app stores or all the other ways to get paid for. Software with low transaction costs. It was basically, if you want the low transaction costs, then there's this free software or open source scene that you can participate in. If you want to get paid, you put up with the high transaction costs. So where I see the the big challenge for open source as a place where people invest their time is... Why do you do open source and not software as a service or why do you do open source and not a mobile app that you can distribute with no more overhead than deploying an open source release and that's a that's a question that's that's still open that would be great to have some some better answers to
0: mm.
1: You have any thoughts about that, Catherine? Is, is oh, I have
0: so many thoughts. I mean the, we've we've talked we've talked a lot about this and you know, and I think we'll probably continue to talk a lot about this because I think it's important and I think it, it has a tremendous impact on the open source ecosystem. But you have you have um, you know this new ecosystem where you have major, major tech giants building billion dollar companies. Using a lot of open source software and then you have, you know, and they're at some level, they're getting a lot of basically free code because that's what it is. Um, And then you have a lot of people at, at the bottom becoming very resentful of these big companies. And I think it's I think it's going to continue to cause problems. You have people. You know changing licenses on one hand you have people just generally getting upset on the other hand. <laughs> um i mean we, I, could, I could talk more but i think that's what it boils down to is you, is there's a little bit of a david and goliath thing that's evolved and a lot of it is um the result of the freedoms that we enjoy and don't want to uh violate or or um you know that sort of thing I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if we're talking about the same thing here, Don and I. But but it, it's something that I think that concerns a lot of people. Certainly concerns me.
2: Yeah, and when open source got started, there was a lot of cognitive surplus available to be tapped. A lot of the people who participated in open source early on were people who had. Very um, uh, flexible university experiences, or non-demanding corporate jobs, or other opportunities to devote some time to a long-term project for common for common good. They were they were so they were so high up on the hierarchy of needs that they weren't even thinking about the stuff at the lower level, which is really great. Um, But today the, the rent is too damn high. Exactly. But there's a lot of, of people getting more, um, getting more demands on their time in order to, Keep up, and there's a lot of um, of organizations that are better able to capture that cognitive surplus.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I, I just I feel like I see growing resentment, and not just individuals, but smaller companies and whatnot. Just um, that are becoming as you say, as the rent, <laughs> as the rent gets more expensive, you know people become more uh, painfully aware of let's say of inequality of of uh, of you know fortunes being built off of what they perceive to be their own backs mm-hmm. and um, and the consequences are well unforeseen we don't know what they are now, we don't know what they have been necessarily we, um, I mean we know some of them, but we don't know what they will continue to be um yeah
1: yeah you yeah, go ahead sorry
0: well i I'm just thinking um again it's not, and it's not just individuals when when l- small businesses medium sized businesses start start to get it get in on the let's say resentment, um the consequences become more uh, more obvious again not, lic- and, changing licenses and that sort of
2: and and it's not just resentment, there's also an element of risk. They're,
0: oh, absolutely.
2: One of the side effects of having good dependency management tools is that real world IT projects are building deeper and deeper dependency trees. So the success of your website deploy might depend on some software component three levels deep whose maintainer is going to burn out right as you deploy your site, but you don't know it. So there's this, this risk for anybody depending on open source that the, the model for sticking with it just doesn't pencil out and the people who you need to stick with it in order to have your thing be successful might be several hops away. Right. So there's there's no good way of getting that information, kind of propagating the the developer pressure from the developer who's experiencing it to the leader of the project that depends on their
0: work right and i think further complicating this whole issue is just the fact that um i think the vast majority of people today working on open source projects with open source projects and 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 whatnot are people who haven't been around open source for that long they don't remember what open source was like and in, in, in the the time that you were thinking about when there was all of this surplus and 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 whatnot um the, all they see is that they're using these open source things okay that they happen to be open source but they're they're, they're just tools in their toolbox you oh. know they don't, they're just, they're just tools. They're things that we use to do our jobs and yeah, okay, I'll contribute back because I had fun at this conference. And, and, um, you know, maybe I don't get the big picture. Maybe I haven't, I I haven't experienced it in the same way. So my perception of it is so different than yours and mine. Um, My, my actual perception being me, not this hypothetical person. But I I think that's a a complicating factor. I think um, people are, as actually Doc mentioned in the beginning of this whole question was the PR people are kind of losing touch with with what open source
2: was well, look at look at corporate open source program offices. so the kind of the kind of operations within those big companies that focus on the meta work of open source the the kind of people who can go to open source conferences or um, participate in corporate decision-making around open source, a lot of those people came into it as developers back in the day when things were better and there wasn't that pressure on developers to do other things. So you you've kind of got this this frozen in time view of an idyllic open source collaboration scene that's been that's been almost frozen in amber and used as the basis for how large companies interact with open source. Yeah.
0: And well, yeah. we'll see. We'll see how long that amber holds out. I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah.
0: Oh, it's, I think I think I think what this means now that we're coming to the end of our allotted time is that we must do this again. <laughs> there are so many. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, there's add. a lot
1: of of baseline that we could go back to. I mean, it. it, it um, we're kind of an interesting time in history right now. I think there's a, a real overlap between a lot of things. I was thinking when you were, you guys were talking that um, when we. Back when op- back when open source came along as a thing, which really happened in 1998. I mean, it was a deliberate decision by a bunch of geeks that we going to start talking about open source in 1998. Mm. Uh, the term was hardly used before that, and uh, um, but at that time there were no smartphones. You know, there were no no tablets, none worth talking about, none of the kind that we have now. Um, there were none that were based on Linux, <laughs> right? That that were you know which which android is but but people you know people are you know i mean they're we're living in a very different world right now where everything's a lot more disposable everything's a lot more integrated um uh uh if you're writing code it could be on anything um uh people i think were a lot more conscious of what they were doing it on and for uh in those days and there was a sense also of pioneering that i think is fairly gone i mean i think of the early linux worlds you know, with, with um, you know, Linus showed up and, you know, 10,000 people filled a room, you know, and it was it was a sense of huge excitement about it. And it's, you know, that's old hat now. <laughs> you know, we're, you know, the, you know, Linus is doing fine and Linux continues to evolve and that's all that's all there, but um, uh, it's a different world. But the thing is too, we're all gonna be using different you know, machines in a couple of years, uh, especially on on the mobile side. I just wrote a piece about that's in the current Linux Journal about five G, and I wrote it a month, two months ago, something like that. And already stuff came up today that obsolesces a bunch of stuff I wrote in there that I I, I had to go in and make some changes. Uh, You know, and the web version of it based on a couple of small things. You know, and it but the world's changing pretty fast. So that's all an excuse to get back and, and talk about this stuff again.
0: What's the curse? May you live an interesting time
1: oh yeah well that's always the curse you yeah, know, that's, uh, there you go yeah. so, uh, well thanks a lot Don this has been great
0: yeah, yeah
2: Don, Catherine thank you for having me on the podcast
0: yeah thank you so much I'm looking forward to listening to it again <laughs> Oh, and thank you everyone for joining us hear the music okay cool